Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you. Uh, man, I have to be honest. Uh, when we were talking about this, uh, this new series called The Games We Play, I got really, really excited because I love to play games. Right? I love all different kinds of games. Uh, my wife and I usually find ourselves, if we have an evening by ourselves, we usually end up trying to decide between watching a show or playing a game. Uh, we're both pretty competitive people who like to win, even though I frequently find Jackie finding little ways to cheat to win. Um, we, uh, we were playing Mario Party last night, and I had a chance to steal her star, and she sassed me into not stealing her star. But anyways, uh, but anyways uh, we made a discovery a while ago that someone introduced us into what's called cooperative games. And I'm happy to report this has been very good for our marriage uh, because um, what we do is you work together to beat the game. So either everyone wins or everyone loses. We find ourselves having way less, uh, let's call them debates, um, you know, and our, our marriage is pretty solid because of these games. Uh, we find ourselves having to apologize less over what should be a friendly board game. Now, I don't know your relationship with board games, but perhaps there are some that you love and there are some that you hate. And there are probably those games that's like, oh, I'll, I'll tolerate them. If, if people want to play them, I'll, I'll go ahead. So I kind of want to just get a pulse on all of you this morning. So here's what I need. Uh, we're going to go through a few different games. And I'm just, I'm just curious about uh, these different games and which ones you love. So if you love these games, I want you to raise your hand like you're praising Jesus, okay? Um, but if you hate the games, just leave, those, leave the hands down. Um, or if you just kind of just feel eh about it, you can give me one of these, okay? If you're watching online, then we invite you to drop some comments or emojis about how you feel about these games as well. So first one, apples to apples. How do you guys feel about apples to apples? Got some hand raisers, some, uh, eh, it's okay, right? Okay. All right. Um, what about Scrabble? Anybody love Scrabble? Listen, I hate Scrabble. I hate it so much. <laughs> Uh, I don't have a great vocabulary, and so Scrabble is a real struggle for me. Um, okay, uh, what about chess, right? Who, who are my strategic people in the room? A few of you, a few of you. Some people are like, yeah, I don't even know how to play chess, but that's okay. Strategery, okay. Um, but what about Connect Four? Classic Connect Four, yes. The crowd pleaser. My son just got this uh, Candyland Connect Four where you have to like connect different pieces only on the bottom row. I don't know how it works, but anyways. Uh, all right, last one. What about Risk? Risk. A few of you. Okay. Now, we're getting closer to like my type of board games. Like the, the, the deeper the strat, like the, the more I'm invested, right? There's this amazing game called Scythe. Aaron Hayes taught me how to play. It takes an hour to learn and three hours to play. It's phenomenal. But anyways, Risk is a great game though, right? Simple dice rolls to determine who will rule the world. You need some strategy, right? Like just give me Australia down here and just watch me build my empire up and up and up. If you play Risk, you know what I'm talking about. Um, but uh, you need some luck to win the dice rolls as well, right? So it's a, but it's, like I said, it's a game I rarely get to play because Jackie isn't the biggest fan. But we're in week two of this series, and for today's game, we're going to categorize it as the game of Risk. Now what we're going to discuss today is an issue that I believe as a culture, it typically falls under that tolerate category. But the question is, should we? It's something that Jesus says is a giant risk, like playing with fire. If you play with it too long, you are probably going to end up getting burned. So I want to start this morning by reading Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. 
says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you uh, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if, you, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And so what we're talking about today is the game of lust. And if Jesus' words sound extreme, it's because they are. But so where we, where, we have to play, uh, where we have to start is this. What is lust anyways? It's a term that certainly covers kind of this broad spectrum of things, and so let's define it this way. Lust is the feeding of misplaced desires. Now, there are many forms of lust out there. You can lust over a lot of different things, but the most prominent form of lust that we see is sexual desires. And this issue is tolerated everywhere, isn't it? It's clear and obvious in the culture around us and things like the advertisements that they see. They say that four out of ten ads are sexual in nature and 90, 92% of those use women as the subject. And that's probably even a conservative number. Simply put, lust is everywhere. And the more apparent things are, the more familiar we become with it, or the more regular we engage in that, con- in that content, the more tolerant we'll become over it. But tolerance is something that's built over time. Let's say that you, uh, let's say that you really enjoy spicy foods, right? That you can, they say you can build a tolerance towards spice by, by slowly eating and increasing the spice level of the food that you're, that you're partaking in. Or, or perhaps you've uh, had to be prescribed a, a medicine over a long term. Sometimes they, they have to increase the dose because your body starts to build this tolerance towards that medicine. And the same is true when we engage in lust, that the more frequently you engage in it, the more tolerant you become of it. And so then we're in kind of this tough place where we have to ask ourselves, man, where do we draw the line? What is okay and what is not okay? What content are we good with and what content do we not engage in? But man, uh, building a tolerance towards sin through becoming more and more familiar with it is a dangerous place to be. Because once we start uh, building that tolerance and once we start engaging in that sin, man, we find ourselves justifying all kinds of actions that are not of God. And so why does Jesus speak so harshly and directly about lust? Well, it's because lust is, is risky because it's so tricky. Because what lust does is it, it tricks us into thinking that it only affects ourselves. But that couldn't be further from the truth. In the, biblical, in the biblical example that we're going to examine today, um, we'll see, what we see is this, this, how destructive lust can be. Whenever we see lust happening throughout our culture, we can see the path of hurt, pain, and woundedness that it can leave. That lust, especially when it grows into action, can and has destroyed relationships. That marital unfaithfulness can and has ruined families or porn addictions can and has ruined marriages and the lust of others can and has left a scar on so many of us that lust forever. So I want to invite you all to open up your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter, uh, chapter 11. And so what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be looking at probably the most famous story of lust found in Scripture. 
But before we get into our story today, I just want to address a couple of things. First is that parts of today's message and just the, 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 uh, the topic where we're headed today is, is maybe going to be a little bit tough and direct for some of us. These aren't the type of sermons that we do all of the time, but it can be a sticky topic, and certainly a 30-minute message isn't enough to cover all the different aspects and ramifications of lust. But this message is for all of us in one way or another. And secondly, I would ask that you please hear me out, because there's such a powerful message of grace, hope, and love, and redemption, even within this difficult topic. And so let's dive into our story of 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting in verse 1. It says, in the spring, at the time when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. And then she went back home and the woman uh, received and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. And so David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how, Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And so Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king, talking about David, was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all his master servants and did not go down to his house. All right, so here's King David, right? The same guy that as a young boy charged into battle to defeat the, the giant Goliath. And now he's leading this nation and they are at war. Now, David, he should be with his troops. He should be with his army, should be at the battle, but he chooses to stay home. He chooses to stay home and play a game of risk by going to war with the sin of lust in his heart. And he loses big time. He sees this woman who is not his wife, but rather the wife of Uriah. He lusts after her, uh, sins for her, has sex with her without her consent, and then tries to cover up his tracks. As you read, if you continue to read the story of David or the story of Bathsheba, King David goes to great lengths to cover up his sin. He sets up Uriah to have this intimate moment with his wife so that Uriah would think that this child is his. He gets, uh, David gets Uriah drunk and sends him home to be with his wife, but Uriah uh, refuses because he knows it isn't right. And when all of David's plans fail, he sets up Uriah to be killed in battle. You know, what's always stood out to me in this passage is that in this series of events, a drunken soldier has more character than the king of Israel. Uriah chooses what's right. When King David does everything and anything in his power to continue to cover up his sin. Now, there's a lot to glean from this story. It's an impactful story that I really encourage you to read in full at a different time. But David's actions go to prove that he thought that his sin would only affect himself. And so what we have to do is when he first saw her, we have to imagine that thought process that, that she's this beautiful woman and he's probably sitting here thinking, you're the king of Israel, right? This, this woman, she would be honored to, to be asked into your bedroom, wouldn't she? 
But we know that, that this is not the case. And his actions, even after the fact, continued to prove how focused on self he was. How do I keep myself clean? How do I hide my mess? How do I get myself out of this predicament? You can clearly see how his exposed sin is driving his actions. But lust, that misplaced sexual desire, impacts others as well. And sometimes this is a hard thing to remember because lust feels like such an internal thing. But we know that it can easily become more than that. Now, I have to share with you, um, I've, got this, uh, I've got this bad habit of, uh, of when I'm driving on the road, I express my frustration towards other people and how poorly they drive, okay? I've had this habit for a long time, right, since I've been 16, I have the, oh, come on, like, just, can we get moving, like, let's go, right? I, I, I just, I have this, like, I won't call it a full road rage, but I definitely have, like, this road uh, anger and frustration, okay? Um, and so, anyways, but for the longest time, I didn't think it was a big deal, right, because it's just me in the car, like, I'm just shouting, right, at these people, maybe the people next to me think I'm just singing loudly at the radio. But uh, in fact, I'm judging other people's driving. Uh, but what happens is, uh, you know, my wife and I, we now have three kids, and those three kids fill up the back seats of the car. And sometimes, rarely, they're quiet. And, you know, if, you, if you're a parent, you can kind of forget that they're back there sometimes, right? And so I'm driving, and I'm just sharing my frustrations and all these things. Well, over time, my oldest son, Cohen, uh, we, were, <laughs> we were sitting at a stoplight, and it turned green, and he went, Come on, car! And I was like, Cohen, we don't talk like that. And I was like, oh, that's, that's me. <laughs> I'm sure many of us have had those moments, right, where we go, oh, no, that's, he got that from me. <laughs> those are my words. Like, yeah, we, I probably shouldn't talk like that, right? That so many times we, we can forget the impact that our, our choices, our actions can have on other people, even when we don't realize it. And we kind of forget about it. Like David, we can believe the lie that lust is just between me, myself, and I. We say things, well, it's not really lust, it's just a thought. Or, or what's the harm? I'm just looking. Or what damage could porn do? It's just on my phone. And the possibilities here go on and on and on. But lust, perhaps more than any other sin, if we give it an inch, it will take us a mile. It will consume you so quickly. Before you know it, those lustful emotions are in our minds. They fill our hearts and create this hunger and thirst within us that never seems to be satisfied. But we have to remember that David's lust wasn't just sexual. There was a lust of power and abuse of authority. It was a lust of influence and prominence. There was a lust of, of comfort and ease. The same guy that, as a young man, was willing to go against these giants is choosing to not go to battle and stay within the comfort of his own palace. And then he took what was not his and tried to pin it on someone else. Now, with the popularity of this text and story, I've heard some applications over the years that are less than ideal. They're always with good intentions, but I think sometimes they miss the mark on a core principle. That sometimes you hear this text being drawn, uh, driven towards what we look at, right? The, the, the people will get up and they'll talk about, well, David was, he looked towards the roof of her house, and so it's simple, just stop looking. But lust is a sin problem, not a seeing problem. 
Now, sure, practical steps are essential. We should be guarding ourselves against lust. There are a lot of ways that you can do that by eliminating temptation in your life through, through your habits. But, but cutting everything out of our sight isn't practical. We all understand how saturated our culture is with sexual content. And so just not looking at it isn't really a good option. Or another application you might hear about this is, uh, is about how David was married. And so where were his wives? Like, why was he living like a bachelor? But I want to remind us that lust is a sin problem, not a singleness problem. That married people lust, single people lust, older people lust, younger people lust. That everyone is capable of lusting. Let this be a reminder about saying I do does not create just this magical shield where this problem goes away. Or another application you might hear of this text is by people reminding um, people about how David was alone, but lust is a sin problem, not a solitude problem. That you can't have people around you 24-7. Now, I'm 100% extroverted, right? I love people being around me all the time, but it's just not practical. And so what do you do? What do you do when we understand that lust is a sin problem? When we understand that marriage is not going to magically solve your issue with lust or eliminating screens will only help but never solve it or never being alone or looking at another person isn't really logical. And so where does that leave us? What do we do in the face of this sin? There's only one answer. It leaves us broken at the feet of Jesus with our hope only in being restored through him. I'd like to do for a moment, I'd like to take, uh, take a look at Psalm chapter 51. Psalm 51 is uh, the psalm that David wrote after this incident with Bathsheba and after he was called out by this guy named Nathan in 1 Samuel chapter 12. But Psalm 51, I want to read verses 1 through 2 and verses 10 through 13. So keep in mind, this is David speaking after his encounter with Bathsheba. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Let's jump ahead to verse 10. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Guys, David understands the weight of his sin, but also understands the weight of God's love and forgiveness. That we can hear David's tone of repentance, that he has identified his sin, he has asked God for forgiveness and is seeking restoration and committing himself to a life of obedience and also continuing to show people how to turn back to the ways of God. We hear David saying, create in me a pure heart, renew me, restore me, grant me, have mercy on me. He is humbly before God. And so it all comes down to this. And this is the message of hope for today. To conquer lust, Jesus must conquer our hearts. That we don't approach the throne of God trying to prove our worthiness because we are not worthy of the grace of God. We don't deserve it. We don't stand against 
Uh, we don't stand a chance even against our own sin. That This is something that we have to realize when we identify the fact that we have sin in our life. We have to know that we're no match for it. There is no amount of devotion. There is no amount of discipline. There is no amount of, of good efforts. There is no amount of, of grit or white knuckling or, you know what, I'm just going to pull my bootstraps up and defeat this sin that we're no match for it. Because there's only one way to defeat sin. It's through Jesus. We can't say, I'm just going to try harder. If I have enough grit, I can get past this. We can only defeat sin by allowing Jesus to do what he does. Because he defeated sin. We can only win the battle against our sin by allowing Jesus to fight it. But this is the good news of the gospel. No matter what sin you might be facing, lust included, that Jesus has never lost a battle. And he never will. It is out of the immense love of God that we place our hope and our trust in the resurrection of Jesus and we receive grace and forgiveness for our sins, that this is the place where we must start. This does not mean that in order to beat lust, uh, that we just, we just have faith with no action, but often we swing the pendulum one way or another. Some people try to take action by just saying, you know what, I've identified the sin and I'm just, I'm just going to buck up and I'm just going to beat it. But we also understand that, that we can't swing the pendulum all the way to where it's just, well, I'm just going to have just faith with no action. There's a tension that exists there. But what I want to remind us of is this. In the story of David and Bathsheba, there's redemption that is found. David's sin was wrong. It was harmful. There's no excuse for it. But man, this should highlight the grace of God. Because David was still considered, even after this occurrence, after this sin with Bathsheba, despite how great this sin was, David was still considered a man after God's own heart. That David's life, story, and faith were redeemed. But also, Bathsheba's story isn't tossed aside either. Bathsheba was the victim of this lust. She was the receiver of someone's bad choice. And she's often the character that kind of gets set aside a little bit in the story because, well, this is about David and his process and how God redeemed him. And so, but man, I don't want us to forget about Bathsheba. Because God didn't forget about her either. You can read in Matthew chapter 1 about the genealogy of Jesus, the lineage of Christ, arguably one of the most important names assembled. You can read through a lot of history leading up to the birth of Christ. And within that lineage, we find Bathsheba. That her story was also redeemed and restored, that she was seen by God and not cast aside. But just like David... We've all lost battles with lust. And just like David and Bathsheba, we have the opportunity for our faith in the gracious work of Jesus to make us new and whole again. So how do we win this battle? How do we get to this place where we allow Jesus to conquer our hearts? Well, for many of us, it takes doing the hard things, the uncomfortable things, or the accountable things. 
This is a call for, for, for something beyond a few short prayers for so many of us. For Jesus to conquer your heart, perhaps it's time for you to allow other people into that. What would it look like for you to commit to a community of people where vulnerability and accountability can happen? What would it look, for, look like for you to open up, not to everybody in the room, but to a few close people who also love Jesus that want to see the best in you? What would it look like for that accountability to be created? I want to say there's, man, there's, there's, no, there's, not, there's not enough time to be able to go through all the different applications within this topic. So I just want to say two things. If you feel hopeless, if you feel helpless or abused or traumatized, please know two things. God has not and will not cast you aside. You are loved deeply. And if you reach out, we will do what we can as a church and as pastors to help provide support and direction. Now, you may have heard the phrase, what you starve dies. This is pretty good advice, and I think it applies here. According to the words of Jesus, he says, if it causes you to stumble, cut it off, gouge it out, a.k.a. starve it. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us to throw off every sin that so easily entangles. And so whatever you find yourself lusting after, if that's sexual desire, power, popularity, stuff, or whatever it is, starve it. And there are certainly some practical steps for you to start to take in your life. We must be willing to take those measures that if we want to start to defeat this sin that may have had a stronghold in your life for such a long time, we have to try something different. Because for whatever reason, and no matter how much you're trying, it just seems to keep coming back and back and back. And so what would it look like for you to take appropriate measures of, of accountability or delete your apps or get safeguards on your laptop or find community to be accountable before? But I think there's something even more powerful than that phrase. It's this, it's what you feed and what you feed it with becomes what you crave. And so if there is any type of lust problem in our life, if we feed it, it will continue to grow and develop. And so rather, may we be found feeding our relationship with Jesus as 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us, it says, May we crave pure spiritual milk so that we may grow in our salvation now that we have tasted that the Lord is good. May we feed our relationships with Jesus. And guys, this is not a focus on just not sinning, but rather a focus on obedience to Christ, a focus on, on pursuing his righteousness, a focus on understandings, understanding the teachings of Christ and applying them to our life. And so we don't, just, we don't just take appropriate measures to starve our lusts, but also develop habits of feeding our hearts, our minds, our souls, and our eyes with more of Jesus, that we are committed to allowing his spirit to rule and reign in our hearts and to become more like him. In just a moment, uh, we're going to take communion together. And so if you guys have those elements, I want you to uh, go ahead and encourage you to get those out. Like I said at the beginning, this is, this is kind of a, 
a tougher message to preach about, to talk about lust and the impacts that it can have. And so I just want to remind us again that no matter where you are, whether you struggle with lust, whether you've been on the, the receiving end of someone else's lust, man, know that you are loved by Jesus. Because so often that what happens is, is, is Satan will creep this voice into our minds that say, man, you are so full of all this junk. There's no way that there's any room for the love of God in your life. And may I just say that is a lie. If there's one thing that's clear, it's how much God loves us. Because despite our sin, despite our poor choices, despite how consumed we can feel by our sin, or despite how often it seems like this sin just creeps into our lives and it just, it just continues to go on and on and on and on and on. It seems to be this, this stubborn sin that we just can't get rid of. And no matter how many times we encounter that place, Jesus loves you. That out of his unconditional love, he gave us his son, Jesus. And we place our hope, we place our faith in Jesus. And we understand that there's nothing that we can do to defeat our sin, but place our faith in him. Allow God to begin a restoration of your heart, a restoration of your mind, a restoration of relationships. And yes, there are so many practical steps that you have to take to get there, but we have to start by being at the feet of Jesus. And man, that's what we remember during communion, is that we remember the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, that in his death, man, we can have grace and forgiveness and salvation and mercy. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take communion together this morning. I want to take it in unity. I want us to all take it together to remind us that, that, man, our relationship with Jesus is personal, but it is also, man, something that we get to partake in together. Because on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he sat down with his disciples and he, start, he shared a meal with them. And he said, this is my body broken for you and my blood shed for you. Take and eat, take and drink and remember me. And so if you have that relationship with Jesus, if you consider yourself a believer, we invite you to take communion with us today. And so let's go ahead and, and take out the cracker and let's remember his body that was broken for us. And likewise, when Jesus took the cup, he said, this is my blood shed for you. Take and drink. What we're going to do is we're going to enter into a time of worship. But maybe especially today, we want this time to, to be between you and Jesus. And so whatever you need that to look like, 
I invite you to do that. If you need to sit and pray, then do that. If you need to stand and shout and praise God because of his goodness, then we invite you to do that. There are these prayer benches up front here and you can come forward and kneel as a sign of kneeling before God and approaching his throne and say, Jesus, I'm at a total loss here. Would you please help? But whatever you need this time to look like, we encourage you to do that today.